Hello and welcome to episode 51 of the Clockwork Game Design Podcast. My name is Keith Burgun and I am your host. Today I have a really cool interview with uh, Will Parton. He's a really smart, cool guy who has been writing about games for a few years. Um, he's written for sites like The Atlantic, Variety, Kotaku, um, and a bunch of other sites. Uh, recently he wrote a piece for Waypoint about the new Valve game, Artifact titled, Artifact isn't a game on Steam, it's Steam in a game. Uh, I found that article to be really interesting and um, it just struck me as like, this is one of the people that's out there um, really elevating the conversation on games and we need more of that. And I wanted to ask him about CCGs and uh, good uh, models for um, monetizing games. And so we had a really good conversation. Before I get to that, uh, a couple of show notes. Um, first of all, um, I have a new game called Chess Piece. I, th I think I'm going to call it Chess Piece colon Cool Party. And uh, that might sound like a really weird, dumb name, but I think when you see the game and see it all come together, you will um, hopefully um, appreciate the title. Um, it's, uh, it's, a, it's like chess, but single player and uh, totally non-violent. Not that chess is particularly violent, but um, it's there's no two factions. It's just one faction, and you're kind of moving around and collecting things, and um, it's sort of a race to score, kind of high score kind of game. Um, and it's largely about the cuteness, although I, I do think it's um, it's going to be a good strategy game too. And uh, so that's that already patrons have access to right now. Um, you can get access to it now by becoming a patron. Um, I'm also going to, uh, be upgrading, um, actually I'm going to be upgrading this show for everybody soon. Um, right now you're probably hearing the Oro music, uh, in the background. Uh, I'm going to write a new song that's like the, I've, I've sort of played around with doing like different little jingles for this show, but I really want to find something that expresses, uh, something about this show. I'm not sure what direction to go with it, but I want to have an official theme song and start like kind of a, a big, I don't know, season two of this podcast where it, uh, really takes, I want a new logo. I want a new, uh, a new song. I also want there to be a little bit more, um, segments, uh, a bit more structure to the show to make it more of like a, Ooh, here's a nice thing. That's like got all this content in it rather than just a lot of the shows are just either just an interview or they're just, um, you know, me ranting for an hour. So anyways, um, I want to, I want to structure things a little bit more and give the show just a little bit of an upgrade. Um, and so that's happening. Um, also, uh, Patreon, Patreon patrons, I'm going to be upgrading the Patreon, uh, updating it. Um, the top tiers are going to get, uh, names and characters in chess piece, um, if they want them. Um, I'm also working on, I was trying to make a, a zine, a game design zine for, um, for patrons, uh, and um, ultimately, I, I, what I do is I'd, I'd mail, like, a, if they want, a physical version of the zine to people, um, to patrons, but uh, then ultimately give out the zine to everybody uh, a little bit later in, like, PDF form. So that's something I'm still going to be doing. I was going to do it for, uh, you know, Christmas or holidays, and now I'm going to do it for Valentine's Day. Uh, that's the current plan. And then finally, I'm also working on a new game with Happy Snake, which is, um, it's a game I designed um, a little while back. Uh, if you're familiar with Brick Roads games, uh, that's uh, Brain Good Games. Um, uh, it's based on his game, Solar Settlers. Um, and so I'm working on that now. And that's coming along weirdly well. Um, so yeah, a bunch of things in the in the pipe. I, I still have some thoughts about Omnacronom. I, I want to write something about it. I'm just I'm trying to figure out the right angle, the right timing uh, to really dive into uh, the I guess the conversation about where where I'm going to take Omnacronom. I, I have to there's a lot of things I have to figure out before I can finally solve that. Anyways, that's enough show notes for now. I have other things after other updates, but let's get to the interview. Um, this interview went really well. I'm going to put a lot of stuff that um, Will mentions in uh, the show notes, so please make sure to check those out. As always, you can support this show on uh, patreon.com slash keithbergun. And without further ado, here is my interview with Will Parton. Okay, so Will Parton, thank you for joining me on the show. Uh, I've been I 
I read your article recently, and I was uh, very excited about it. Um, I've also been excited about Artifact in general um, in certain ways, um, not excited about it in other ways. Um, but I wanted to get somebody on to talk about the game, what it represents, um, and uh, what you know, what, what is there to really be learned from this game, both for game designers, but also for people who are interested in, you know, uh, how, what is the business of games going to look like? Um, all that kind of stuff. So we're going to get into all that stuff. Um, thank you for coming on the show. First of all, absolutely. It's my pleasure. Um, so I first wanted to just kind of get people to know a little bit about you and who you are, where you come from. Um, how did you get involved in writing about games? Definitely. Um, so when I was in college, I did a, an art history major and I was a senior and I was working on my, my thesis. And I had this realization one day, I was like, I really like writing about art this way, but I really, you know, games are what my real passion are. And I wonder if anybody's ever like tried to write about games the way that the people I'm reading now are writing about art history. And so this was about 2012, 2013. And, you know, by that point, there was a long and rich tradition of people writing about games from a kind of more cultural and historical perspective. Um, so, you know, I was digging around, I found Kill Screen, I found Rock, Paper, Shotgun, Arcade Review, um, all of these kind of old sort of smart games writing sites. And uh, about a year later, I was, you know, one year into my grad program, um, and I needed some money over the summer, uh, and so I started digging around. I was like, I guess I'll go ahead and pitch somebody. Mm -hmm. um, so I pitched Kill Screen an article on Dota 2, um, another one of Valve's games. Uh, and, you know, they accepted it, and it turned out the pay kind of sucked. But um, that never <laughs> I'm surprised there is pay, to be honest. Uh, but, right? yeah, yeah. <laughs> go on. I, think I, I don't think I invoiced my, like, entire first year of articles there because the pay was just so marginal, and I was like, you know, right. whatever. Yeah. Um, but... So I, and, and from there, I got kind of hooked up with that crowd of people who were really interested in the intersections between games and culture and society. Um, and, you know, I really got to kind of work up my chops there writing about games, doing it in a place where they were pretty permissive about the kind of style you took on. Um, mm. That ended up really that ended up being good for me um, because I really got to, I think, build a style of my own that took some of the lessons around like formalism, um, but also managed to kind of put them into a bigger context. And um, and I'm always very interested in the relationship sort of between like what's inside the art and what's outside it, no matter mm. what medium we're looking at. Um, so really from there, Kill Screen eventually kind of, you know, exploded uh, in a dreadful way. But by that point, I had written enough and I had I gained enough kind of recognition in gaming spaces that I was able to start pitching bigger places. Mm -hmm. uh, from there, we really we moved. I uh, moved around a lot and wrote for Glixel when it was around. Written for Waypoint, Variety, The Atlantic. Uh, I'm writing a lot for the Outline these days, um, um, but that's really kind of my my story in games writing. Um, is this something that you want to ultimately be doing? Is writing like your primary interest, or are there other creative fields that you're interested in? Yeah, I mean, um, I don't ever see, you know, any part of my life where I won't be writing about games, right. um, games, but to me, games are, they're interesting, you know, they are interesting on their own terms, but for me, they're, what matters most is what they illustrate about the rest of the world. Um, hmm. you know, my writing is always games and, yeah. um, the, the waypoints or the article on artifact is games and platform capitalism. Right. Um, to understand how those things work together. Um, but my, I mean, my day job is, you know, I'm a, I'm a grad student and I study sort of platform economies, um, the technology that supports them, um, and you know, the actual kind of system that that produces. So, I mean, the the fancy name there is the platformization of cultural production. But it really just means trying to figure out how culture industries are adapting to a world where large-scale web platforms are really kind of the dominant infrastructural form. Mm. The same way that you can think of old-school factories having been those in the late 18th and 19th century. Yeah, I've been really interested in this whole platform capitalism concept. Um, I, to me, I have some questions for you, which I will definitely get into about that. Um, uh, so that's another reason I wanted to have you on is the broader question about like, you know, how does it how does it really make sense um, to allow these companies, um, whether it's like Amazon or uh, or Steam, to sort of set up this platform and then have this uh, weird just passive? It seems to me like you know passive income kind of situation where they can just be uh, you know have this monopolistic um, 
situation and 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 how platforms themselves are the are the uh are sort of the 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 new product that is the only way to really to really kind of uh become a powerful uh a corporation these days it seems like is that's how you do it is through platforms is, you, you know what i'm saying yeah no definitely i mean platforms are you know there is this kind of inherent drive in capitalism towards consolidation and centralization mm -hmm. um, that really and and platforms are incredible tools for making that happen um, because they're so good at enclosing huge amounts of the world well also you know we feel you know facebook gives us a way to to do new things to be social in new ways so we feel like we're getting something in return mm -hmm. it's just that we're starting to figure out you know over the long term that the bargain that we struck kind of sucks right um, but you know, for me, there's it's always important to to see these things in a history um, because platforms are not new to the internet. Neither are platform economies. Um, we can look back and think of things like phone books are a platform because you can imagine you know a platform in sort of its most classical definition is just you know an intermediary that's going to connect two unlike people or two unlike. Um, so, you know, the phone book, it connects people reading the phone book with people advertising in the phone book or people putting them in there. And so the people who are, you know, the phone book company themselves, they are just sort of setting up the terms of the transaction. Right. Um, and you can also you can think of early things like, you know, the console wars in the 80s. Mm. Um, those that was a was a series of platforms. Um, Nintendo kind of came in and ended up being kind of the winner ultimately because it was able to kind of enclose its ecosystem um, through designing its technology in a way that third parties weren't able to make basically bootleg games for them, which is what sunk the Atari before it. Um, so platforms, yeah. you know, they provide control, but they're also flexible. And they've become so critical today because now that we have software um, and, you know, these mass data collection and algorithmic management, um, you can manage massive amounts of people with relatively little, uh, you know, investment. Mm -hmm. And so that's why you see, you know, a company like Facebook, um, you know, it has a very, very, you know, comparatively small central staff, which is true of a lot of these, um, you know, big tech corporations is there's a small kind of core in sort of the metropole in a way. And then they have these massive, you know, numbers of sort of gig laborers. And then you have all the people who are sort of involved with the platform. Um, but again, the sort of the, the sense here is the reason they've taken over so much is because once you put that platform idea with this sort of large scale management, they become an incredibly efficient technology. Yeah. And it seems like they are, there's like all this um, sort of like intellectual space or like, you know, just knowledge information out there. And they see, you know, platforms uh, to me sort of seem like, okay, well, this entire um, quadrant of like human thought uh, is owned by, uh, you know, the Acme Corporation now. And yep. so any, anything that passes through that sort of thought now, uh, we take a, you know, a, a vig on that or whatever. Um, and, uh, and that's, and that's, that seems weird to me. Uh, and yet I also understand how it's, you know, it's a response, like we haven't had time really maybe to develop the, um, sort of, I guess, social, cultural, um, maybe even moral, um, you know, technologies to go along with some of the, um, physical technologies that mm -hmm. have enabled this, um, to happen. Um, anyway, I want to get into uh, this. You wrote an article about artifacts, so I do want to get into that. We'll come back to the uh, the platform capitalism stuff. Um, yeah. Can you can you tell us um, for those who haven't read it? I'm posting it in the show notes and everything. But for those who haven't read the article, um, could you tell us about the basic premise of your article? Just run us through like what what's it about? What are you what are you trying to say? Basically, it's called "Artifact Isn't a Game on Steam." Uh, where's the title here? It's uh, "Artifact Isn't a Game on Steam." It's Steam in a Game, um, and uh, so. Let us know what's this article all about. Yeah, absolutely. So on the surface, this article is a review of Artifact, uh, which is a new card game created by Valve. So Steam, Dota 2, Team Fortress, Counter-Strike, Half-Life, all that. Um, but I, I wanted to take the review idea and maybe stretch it beyond what we usually mean uh, by review. Because... A lot of people talked about, oh, Artifact's another card game, it's a Hearthstone killer or whatever. But what seemed to me to be significant about the game is how much it was integrated into Steam. That it took sort of the trading card mentality of I own these cards, I'm going to trade them with other people, blah, blah, blah. 
and tied it up with the kind of things that Steam was already good at because, of course, Valve is making an extraordinary amount of money of people doing things like skin trading on Steam. Um, so that led me to sort of think about what if we reviewed um, Artifact not just as a game um, but really as a kind of economy? Uh, what are you know? What is the nature of this economy? What's good and bad about it? Questions we might normally ask in a game review, but applied to a different kind of topic. And in doing that, I wanted to first make a point about how games are shaped by the economic systems in which they're embedded, um, but also make a point about how with games uh, they bleed. They they really it's hard to actually draw a clear line between where a game ends and it begins. Mm -hmm. uh, and that can be beautiful or it can be opportunistic. Um, and so in that sense, I wanted to problematize what we do with game reviews. Um, so the article kind of works on a, a couple of different levels. But the big thing was trying to understand Artifact's place in a broader culture and a broader economy and how it really uh, – its set of design decisions that make it are completely shaped by the underlying mode of production. Right. Yeah. No. That's that's great, and that's that really um, struck me as an important thing that people needed to be talking about. I didn't see a lot of other people sort of taking this same um, tact. You know, people it seemed to me took. Um, relatively predictable um, responses about the game. Um, I'm also interested in the game for purely formal game design reasons, um, but, uh, you know, I, I think it did do some different stuff than uh, it, it sort of, it pushed the boundaries um, in terms of uh, collectible card games, um, just mechanically in, in some ways that I appreciate. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, so how how was your article um, received? And also, I'm really interested uh, to hear because they did release a large patch recently, which changed some of um, some of the economics. Um, so I'm interested to know if you are aware of that patch and if you um, have any thoughts on that and whether that changes any of the, your conclusions. Yeah, definitely happy to speak on both. Um, so as far as the reception, I was actually pretty worried about the article before it went live because it's it's a bit weird. It's kind of it's got this economics aspect to it. It's got, you know, a game that, you know, Dota content is notorious um, for not doing well on these big sites uh, <laughs> because Dota as a game and as a scene is very insular. Uh, it's mm -hmm. the scene I come from. It's a game I love, but that sort of, you know, the breaks that it's very hard to write about Dota because only Dota people read about Dota. Gotcha. Um, and, you know, so... I was worried it would kind of fall in this neither nor situation, but it turned out to kind of be a both and, which was really nice. Um, so it got a lot of play among sort of the intersection of people interested in sort of like Marxism and video games. Um, but it also seemed to actually really, you know, capture of, of really anybody who kind of was concerned about, you know, oh, how are these big systems that we are a part of shaping the kind of games we can play? What kind of games do they produce for us? And, you know, I think it's important that this article comes alongside the sort of broader, you know, tech lash, this age in which we are all very skeptical of Amazon. We're skeptical of Facebook. We're mad at Twitter um, for a variety of reasons. Um, but all of a sudden that, you know, technology and these big tech companies don't seem as benign as they used to. Right. Um, nobody believes in don't be evil anymore. So. So that um, that was really nice, and I, I got a lot of uh, really wonderful comments. Uh, and a, you know, a few people, of course, complained or had issues with it. Um, some of which were valid. I think you know, I'm not a magic player by any means, and so um, some people from the magic community came and took issue with a few parts, um, which which was fair. Um, but I don't think it really undercut the point of the article at all. Hmm. Um, as for the recent patch, um, sort of one of the most significant things in this is that. Initially, they had sort of implied, but not quite out, come and said that, well, you know, we want to, ex you know, use the experience of um, trading card times or uh, trading cards as much as possible. You know, we want to replicate that. Hmm. So what we're going to do is probably not make any balance changes to cards. Right. Um, which it sounds great, <laughs> but unfortunately. Uh, you know, the temptation to actually make balance adjustments to make the game more effective was a little too, um, a little too tempting. And, and on the one hand, Magic has made like balance changes to its cards. They've issued sort of ex post facto rulings about actually this is how this card interacts with this thing because inevitably you're going to find circumstances where cards interact in unforeseen ways. Um, so it never was quite as like um, black and white as saying, you know, 
paper cards are static and digital ones are flexible. Uh, actually, uh, yeah, on that on this point of the uh, the balance patches, does it strike you as strange that they were working on this game? I would assume for at least a couple of years, and then and and then like one week into launch, they decide suddenly that they do want to make these balance changes, like. I don't know. That seems to me that just strikes me as odd. Like I could see that happening six months out, a year out, two years out, but for it to just happen right after launch, I don't know. They're just that just I'm not sure. Like you know, Richard Garfield uh, is involved with the development, and I feel like he probably has a, a pretty good idea of like what he wants to do. And I don't know. It just struck me as strange that it was so soon, such a big kind of reversal on this major thing. I wonder if you had any thoughts on that. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean. Sort of the obvious explanation is there was a big oh shit moment. <laughs> um, and that, you know, of course they did lots of testing of the game. You know, there are lots of open and closed betas and alphas that happen. And I'm sure they have, you know, extraordinary amounts of data in the back end around balancing um, that would have, you know, of course been accessible to them through the whole, in, in the course of development. Um, that it does come so soon, these big changes after release uh, is a little bit suspicious. And as far as sort of this this question of whether or not these changes, you know, shape the validity of my article, I think they in many ways actually underscore the point um, because, you know, I make the point in there that as far as, you know, market correcting mechanisms, sure, you have your invisible hand, your arbitrage, whatever that prevent cards from getting too expensive. Um, but you also have, you know, balancing is is a form of price manipulation because you change the value of cards, which means that once these values get changed, things enter back into circulation. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, we need to buy this card that sucked before, but now we want the good one. So we do that. Yeah. Um, so in a sense that, you know, doing these changes is a way to make sure that people continue with the action of buying and selling. Right. Um, I'm not like, you know, I'm not the kind of Marxist who, you know, has these kind of big conspiracy theories. Um, you know, I think in some ways this is, this is Valve acting exactly the way we should expect them to act. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think it's necessarily nefarious. I think they said, well, we need to keep this going. So let's change these. Um, right. And yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's interesting. The, uh, the, the, to me, I mean, it's 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 very from a strategy game perspective, like the idea. And now I was never a big uh, collectible card game person. I never got really into Magic or any of those games. I I always found the idea of a collectible card game, which you know, you talk a little bit about um, traditional collectible card games in your article, but you know, I think I, I never I didn't have you know the understanding. Obviously, the first time I saw Magic, I was like in middle school or something. I didn't have an understanding of like oh, there's like you know economics, and then there's like uh, you know the actual rules of a game but i think on some level i sort of felt that there was something weird about the degree of bleed between those two things in that in that situation and i agree that that's that's also the thing that people like about it is that um you know is that 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 weird exploration of that but you know i've always been really interested in um these like you know like i like designer board games and and things that are like um just like here's the system, you know, uh, and play with it, explore it as much as you want. And, um, and, you know, it's not like this constant sort of negotiation with the, the, the broader world. However, I'm, I'm more, I'm more open to that now, I think, at least conceptually, um, as long as it's doing something, um, you know, I think, I think games actually have a responsibility to some extent to be very conscious about the interactions that they have outside of their own rule set. Um, And that's where, you know, uh, the, the crime with CCGs isn't that they're interacting outside their rule set. It's the way in which they're uh, interacting outside the rule set, which is, um, you know, uh, I think that example that you gave of, you know, the fact that they can just raise and lower the cost of a card to get people to just buy, sell, buy, sell, buy, sell. Um, and, and they make a, a percent on every one of those transactions. Um, that seems like that's like such a good illustration to me of what's wrong with this whole like idea that we can allow a private corporation to just like own a platform like that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And I think that that gets to kind of the, the heart of what's problematic about platforms um, is there, I mean, there are rent seeking technology and in some ways you have no choice, but to kind of, you know, live with them and through them. And yet, you know, they are expropriating things from you all the time. Um, And you're, you know, it's very, very hard to obviously it's easy to opt out of artifact in the sense that, you know, no one no one is obligated to play artifact. 
Um, but it's very hard to opt out of something like Facebook or Twitter, um, you know, let alone something like Amazon Web Services. Or Google. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. if you're trying to just be a person living in yeah. the network society. Sure. Yeah, actually, I did want to ask you about your, like, uh, the distinction between, um, you know, ca capitalist practices that we've agreed are bad, or at least at one point in history, we agreed were bad, um, something like rent seeking, and how that how, you know, because so obviously, the innovation of the that's what makes this complicated, I think, is that, um, you know, I think people who would defend I, I have friends who like have worked at Google, Facebook, and those kind of things. And, and I've heard their sort of defenses of, of these platforms and, and of the fact that, you know, these companies own this giant swath of like, basically human experience. Um, mm -hmm. And they've said, like, well, um, you know, I mean, first of all, it is true that they innovated these things. They were sort of the first mover on some of these things. Um, I don't know how much that's really worth. Uh, you know, one of the best examples is something like PayPal, you know, or, or Venmo. Like the fact that we're giving this company is getting all this money because they came up with the idea for like sending money over the Internet. Like, you know, it's just uh, I don't know. Or if you can even argue that they came up with the idea, but that that's one thing. And then the other thing is that like, oh well, but we have to keep uh, developing in order to like stay ahead and be on top. You know, we have to keep coming up with new features and you know, uh, stay 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 like it's they're they're sort of they would try to argue that they don't that it's not rent seeking because they have to they have a responsibility to constantly um, sort of upgrade new patches new. Uh, features, whatever. Um, what would you say about that? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I see both sides there. Um, it is true that, you know, in order to maintain, you know, a platform position of dominance, you do have to continually update features to ensure that some competitor doesn't come along and, you know, take your lunch. Um, but there are bigger sort of structural issues that, you know, when you have something like Facebook, you know, one of, one of the things that makes platforms platforms is, you know, something called network effects. And that's the sense that, you know, if you're on it, you derive value, you know, from every other user who is on the platform with you. Um, so Facebook is so good because all of your friends are on Facebook. Um, but that, you know, and that seems obvious, but then it suggests there's a really serious chicken and egg problem, um, which is, you know, in order for a platform to be useful, there need to be people on the platform, but in order to get people on the platform, the platform has to be useful. Right. Um, this is very so, familiar, by the way, to anyone making a multiplayer video game, like a, a multiplayer online video game. Yeah, at all that. Um, and so, you know, that suggests that you, every platform has the unenviable task of, you know, solving that network effect chicken and egg problem. And, um, you know, there's only really only specific historical circumstances that enable you to do so. One is getting there first. Even mm -hmm. if your product is inferior, if you were the first person and you have a massive advantage, uh, that's, you know, basically Steam being a game distributor. Um, and, you know, as we know, Steam as a product kind of sucks. Um, like customer support, all of that business. Dreadful. Sure. It's only in the last few months that people have been able to, you know, with things like the Epic Game Store and now the Discord uh, Game Store have actually been able to challenge the dominance of Steam in there. So there is that sort of winner-take-all effect. That's sort of part one. Mm -hmm. uh, and that makes it then incredibly hard for other platforms to come in and, and be competitive. Um, and I'm actually going to walk one step back and you know, I always benefit from comparison. So if you think about ways that people have solved the chicken and egg problem, um, you think of something like Uber and a lot of the other big platforms, you know, they come along in the wake of the 2008 recession. And, you know, that's not a coincidence because you hmm. have extremely high unemployment and all of a sudden you have these platforms that need a huge number of people working on them. Right. So then that automatically sort of populates them. And all of a sudden it's really quick and easy to get a ride where you need to go. Um, so that was, you know, a way that these platforms leveraged a particular historical circumstance in order to actually solve the network effect problem. Um, another one is Epic Game Store is a great example of how you have, you know, a fucking bajillion people playing Fortnite. And all of a sudden, now you just have this massively popular IP that can drive people onto your platform. Right. Um, so, and that's the sense that, um, you know, major IPs are a, a really important way that people try to achieve network effects. So you can think of origin being released with like the old Republic and then, you know, uh, mass effect three afterwards or whatever, like you play was introduced with. I don't even know what it was. 
um, <clears throat> or like even Blizzard, Battle.net, and StarCraft II when it came out. So yeah. um, all of those are sort of examples. And so in that sense, because then there's a huge lock-in effect that isn't quite as strong as it is in sort of traditional rent-seeking things, um, because there was still space for people to come in and try to undercut the big guy. Um, but here the big guy gets structural advantages because of sort of the affordances of these technologies that traditional like landlords and whatnot would not have. Right. So, you know, there's definitely, there's, you know, like everything, there are points of continuity and points of discontinuity. Um, and I think rent seeking is a very useful way to think about these. Um, but the comparison isn't always one-to-one because -one, of course we're ultimately talking about different things. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. And, and the bigger thing is to to use it as a way of um, starting the conversation and getting people to think critically about these platforms in ways that matter and are um, substantial. I, I was thinking about, you mentioned the Google don't be evil thing. And it's funny, I, I haven't even thought of that in like three or four years. I remember that was like this big thing about 10 years ago. And it's it just struck me that um, like, things are such that they need to say that, <laughs> you know, like things are like, they, they know that like, like, for example, I don't know, somebody working at the post office or like at the, I don't know, at the, at the, the supermarket, like, or, or, you know, like supermarkets, for example, they don't really need to have a slogan. Like we're not going to be evil uh, because uh, they have some regulations on them. And, you know, there's a certain amount of like cultural and social um, institutional pressure on them to, you know, uh, adapt certain norms, right? Like follow certain norms. And uh, Google understands like, we could do whatever we want, like at all. So we're just going to tell you, don't worry, we won't be evil. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and I don't know, that, that just struck me. Yeah. And I mean, Google's a really interesting example because you can go back through their company's history to like the late 90s and you actually see their... Um, their their co-founders writing articles about, you know, the ad-supported web would be a disaster. Uh, it would be so bad for everybody. It would create all these horrible incentives to bias, um, you know, hmm. the just creation of a, you know, absolute total surveillance system, all of that. Um, and of course, they go on to do it anyway. Um, right. And the reason they have to go on and do it anyway is because Google, you know, survives the dot-com burst, but, you know, the dot-com burst in like, you know, 2000, um, you know, makes people very, very wary about Internet and, you know, technology uh, companies. And so they are under huge pressure from their investors and their backers to monetize immediately. And so all of a sudden, this crisis of we are going to lose the company if we don't find a way to monetize now is what really pushes them into, you know, data collection, storing searches and trying to create personalized, you know, results and ads mm. based on that. Um, so that's, you know, in many ways, the beginning of the modern ad supported web. Um, so, again, this very quirky historical situation, the panic everybody felt after the dot com burst, um, you know, having these runaway effects, you know, way, way down uh, years and years later. Yeah, it reminds me of how like there's um, uh, so we have this one, the Internet and the this one Google and this one Amazon and all these things. Um, they didn't have to be this way. I think that there's a way that people sort of um, assume that the way that things are, you know, had to have been the way that they they would be and, and that they could only be this way, um, that, yeah. the, that this is the Internet. And it's like, you know, it, like you say, it, it's a it's a response to specific uh, historical events that happened, um, you know, conditions that caused could cause things to go a certain way. They could have gone a different way. Um, and, you know, we also, to some extent, have uh, the ability to change them going forward. And that is another thing I want to talk to you about is like, I don't know, do, like, do, do you have answers? Like, do you have um, or like... Um, what would you like to see Artifact do? If you, if I don't know if you've thought about that much yet, but like, if if you if if uh, Valve came in and hired you, they read your article and they're like, you know what, we <laughs> we agree with your critique. Um, come in and uh, you know give us like a three or four point plan on what we should do, what you think we should do. If you have any such ideas, I know that these are not easy questions, but um, if you have any ideas for what you think they might be able to do to. Um, take things in a better direction or, I mean, maybe they can't do it. Maybe it has to be more of a cultural change, but um, what do you think? That is a fabulous question and probably one that's impossible to answer. Um, 
I think, of, I mean, a sort of funny thing that happened is after the article got published, um, one of the designers on the game, uh, what's his name? Not Richard Garfield, but another guy I quoted, um, something Reinhardt. Anyway, he like showed up in my, my Twitter mentions and he was like, hey, you added an extra T to my last name. Other than that, really, I loved your article. And I was oh. like, are you really? Like, what's up? <laughs> um, and, you know, additionally, I one of my friends, um, Dr. Daniel Joseph, who wrote his dissertation about Steam, um, you know, he heard that basically his his dissertation, which is a long form Marxist critique of Steam and a lot of the same lines that I'm doing, mm. uh, you know, was basically passed around and read in Valve offices. And right. one of the problems, of course, is, you know, with a lot of Marxist and political economy work is you can reverse engineer it to then just accelerate the process of capital accumulation um, because you're accurately describing how it works, which means you give people power to, you know, oh. these ideas. Right, right, right. Um, so that that's a tricky part of doing this kind of work is in some ways you're like, you're like, oh, what, isn't it really bad that they're doing this? And they go, oh, we are doing this. We could do this more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, but you know, setting setting that point aside, um, <clears throat> as far as you know, if I were going in, if I wanted to make the the artifact that made the most money, I would I would do whatever they're doing now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For if sure. I wanted to make an artifact that I thought was fairer. Um, you know, and that didn't, you know, engage in these kind of exploitative rent seeking, you know, labor dispossession type things. Um, it, we would really be going back to the model of you buy it and you own it. Um, right. And there's, you know, there's not every person who sees themselves as a leftist is going to agree with the same way or agree and agree in the same way. Um, but something about changing the license agreements that allow you, you know, once you do this, um, you know, it's yours. You can do what you want with it. You know, if you want to, if we, you want us to make, you know, servers and games for you, obviously there's going to be a little bit of a give and take. Um, but you know, basically being able to buy the game and then here you go, here's, you know, all the base cards, and then every expansion you're going to turn out an extra, you know, ten to fifteen bucks. That's, you know, not. It's only radical because we don't do it anymore. Mm. Um, and. You know, that's to me ultimately is a mode of production and monetization that does not create incentives to exploitation the way that these more rent seeking and platform based ones do. So, um, my, and, uh, I, I, I'm sorry, keep going. Yeah. Um, and, you know, sort of a second one would be actually doing subscription based services. That's just what I was about to say. Yeah. <laughs> and I think, I think that's where a lot of the industry is going, actually. Um, you know, I think. Loot boxes are sort of on the way out. You know, they're they're never going to go away entirely. They're going to you know settle into particular corners. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I expect that as people, you know, more and more kind of you get these walled garden approaches to games, mm-hmm. um, things are going to look more and more like Netflix slash um, whatever the ABC is it ABC Go? What is it called? Uh, HBO Go, I think. Uh, I don't know what the ABC one's called. I never even yeah. I didn't even know they had one. Uh, what do you mean? It's an example of a of a platform, and their IP was trying to get people on with the new Star Trek series. Mm. Um, so, you know, I think that's probably the future here. Is you know, um, and you note that you know, in the last year, the amount of variety on Netflix has you know, you know, dropped substantially, as you know, Disney prepares to release its own streaming service mm. and so forth. Um, so, I expect the game industry to do something pretty similar. Um, and in some ways, you know, that does hurt consumer choice, um, but it also provides fewer incentives for, you know, these, you know, long term sort of horrifically exploitative things. The, the incentives are still there, to be sure, um, but it's not quite as bad as it is with sort of like the free to play revolution. Um, I could be dissuaded of this point um, and maybe it'll have egg in my face, but that's my sense is, you know, trying to get people back in the sense of you're paying for what you get rather than the false bargain of free-to-play or, you know, free-to-use service. Um, that's good. Yeah, and um, I, I'm a big fan of subscription uh, models, which are particularly useful for the kinds of games that I'm very most interested in making, which are kind of like these evergreen things that you're constantly patching and, you know, adding to. And, like, so something like a balance patch or, like, a, pa- a patch that just improves the game in this sort of... Um, you know, arcane game designy kind of way, but that actually matters, but that 
people would never pay a few bucks for. Um, that's the kind of stuff that I'm most interested in, and that's the kind of stuff that you could only do, or that the uh, incentives between the player and the designer, or the you know the person trying to sell the game, um, are li- aligned most with something like a subscription service for that kind of a game. So um, that's that's what I'm most interested in for sure. Yeah, and I, I I personally think you'll probably get your wish. Yeah, well, that's pretty cool. Uh, um, there was one other thing uh, that I wanted to ask you about. Um, uh, oh, yeah, the idea of um, reduced uh, player choice you mentioned. Um, and um, this is something that um, I've heard a lot. Um, increasingly, people talk about a little bit more um, regarding the topic of um, stuff like you know trust busting and uh, monopoly and how I've, at some point, I believe in the 70s, I think like, Robert Bork was involved or something, but the standard uh, for what makes something a monopoly or what makes something a threatening monopoly um, or the standard under which you could um, exercise trust busting or um, other methods of, um, you know, mitigating uh, monopolistic uh, corporations was that it hurt consumers. And so as long as the prices were lower, as long as people were getting a lot of value, so we talk about something like Amazon, which obviously gives people awesome it's amazing for consumers you know you have so much choice it's so cheap it's so practical etc 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 so that's that old standard of um you know is is the consumer being hurt uh doesn't apply to amazon instead what we have is this other these other concerns about like uh is this company like threatening democracy and also like uh you know are they getting so large that they're becoming a threat to democracy and also you know is the economic system what's that oh it's like a nation state did you say Oh, it's and and probably a threat to nation states. Sort of the entire the entire nation state model is threatened by transnational platform based capital. True. Yeah. And so, to the extent that we care about that, I mean, that's something to worry about. And also, you know, if you just love capitalism, you know, uh, this is also something that probably makes that not work the way that uh, you would ideally want it to work. So there's all these other sort of standards that you can look at and uh, apply to um, uh, this question. And I guess this kind of maybe loosely connects to our topic, but um, I found myself thinking about it a few times uh, during the conversation. Um, And I don't know, like, you know, I just, I sometimes I wonder, like, are things going to start getting better and are they going to start turning like gently into a nice direction or is there going to have to be like serious um, intervention, um, government intervention uh, in order to, uh, or some other, or some other mechanism, uh, boycotts or something uh, in order to change, um, change things. Like how are things going to change? Do you think if they change? Yeah. So, I'm sort of out here like boycotts are ineffective. Um, there are the rather they're effective only in certain contexts. Mm-hmm. Um, they're ineffective against something like Amazon because, of course, on the one hand, the majority of Amazon's new revenues in the last five years come from Amazon Web Services, which you use whether or not you know you're using them or not. Right. Um, very hard to boycott web services. Um, <clears throat> so. I mean, so which means that if you need these, you know, massive interventions that fundamentally change things, to me, they have to be state-based interventions. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that means, I mean, the argument you're alluding to around sort of the history of antitrust law, um, that comes from like, you know, Lena Khan's wonderful article, Amazon's Antitrust Paradox, mm. um, where she makes, you know, this this point that, um, you know, she's 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 not a Marxist, <laughs> like. You know, she's not out here trying to, like, you know, hasten the revolution for you, for the proletariat. Um, you know, she's, you know, clearly she's a capitalist. But, you know, she is part of an, a new generation of thinkers who are pointing out that the capitalism that we now find ourselves embedded to, embedded into, is probably harmful to the very things that capitalism is good at, mm. um, namely increasing growth. Uh, and, you know, you can also add something like Thomas Piketty there, um, right. who is – sometimes gets either demigrated as a Marxist or alternatively taken up by Marxists as being this like great woke economist, um, when in fact his argument is not that capitalism is bad, um, and that's why we have inequality, but that inequality is bad for capitalism. Basically, Keynesianism, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, and you know he's here to do something like um, you know eighty-five uh, percent capital gains tax, and then working with state-based you know solutions across borders to make sure that people can't engage in tax evasion. Mm-hmm. Um, that's probably not politically viable in our current circumstance. Sure, um, and it's hard to know what we would need to do, but I don't see any way forward. Um, that does not involve you know, massive top-down solutions from the state around antitrust that try to not just think about consumer convenience, but also competitor convenience. Hmm. Um, so not just B2C, but also B2B. Uh, and that means turning away from price theory, which is sort of the idea behind um, consumer convenience as the basis of antitrust law, in a way t- in back towards like economic structuralism, which is what it was in many ways, what broke up sort of the first gilded age of the Rockefellers and Carnegie's and so forth. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that we're, there, there seems to be a sort of a repetition of a, to some, or like a, you know, a, a rhyming repetition of, uh, of what happened, you know, a hundred years ago, um, that may be, um, happening now. Um, I also, you mentioned in your, um, in your article, um, I actually, at the end of the podcast, I want to ask you a couple of questions about, or, or just get a few recommendations from you about books, because, uh, you mentioned this one book, uh, platform capitalism. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yes. Yeah. So that, um, that's by an English, uh, you could call him an economist, uh, Nick Cernicek. Um, it's an incredibly, it's a short book. You can get through it in an afternoon. Uh, it has three chapters. Um, the first one is trying to actually think about how we got here. So going back to the economic crises in the 1970s around productivity and profitability, both of which fell dramatically then and understanding sort of what that set into motion and how that becomes sort of the situation today where we have now data as this new, you know, supposedly raw resource that we're going to mine and, you know, turn into something more valuable. Um, the second chapter is really a typology of platforms. Sometimes we use platform um, sort of uncritically. We just kind of throw it out. But, you know, he's very good that there are product platforms, advertising platforms, industry platforms, lean platforms. He's, he has a whole thing. It helps you really see, you know, what they have in common, but also what's different about them. Mm-hmm. And then he ends talking about sort of the future of, you know, what actually is you know, going to stick around. And he's an interesting argument he makes is that Uber and Lyft are probably screwed. Um, interesting. As, as institution. Um, so that's, that's a really good book. Um, it is, it's definitely accessible. It's on sort of the tougher side of sort of books aimed at the public, um, but definitely you can get through it in an, in an afternoon or a day or two. Hmm. Um, so that's that's a personal favorite. Um, another one I love is Custodians of the Internet by Tarleton Gillespie, which is about the history of content moderation on platforms. Mm-hmm. And it's a really good one because it's one of these books that tries to imagine the continuities and discontinuities um, between questions around you know, what, what is appropriate public discourse? Um, what, what do we expect from the custodians of the internet in a way? Um, is it different from what we expected from traditional news organizations or whatnot when it comes to trying to figure out, you know, what, what belongs on the airwaves, what has a right to be platformed in a way? Um, and it's a really smart book. Um, and that I think would be really useful for, you know, of course there's so much around, um, you know, what we can and can't say on Twitter, um, mm-hmm. who should be platform, who should be no platform. Um, and then coming out this month in about two weeks, uh, just a book called, I think it's called, just called Surveillance Capitalism. It's by uh, Shoshana Zuboff. Um, and it really is sort of the long take at trying to understand how this, you know, surveillance and data collection became really coextensive with the kind of capitalism we live in now hmm. um, to understand that, you know, it has it has a history. Um, it comes from somewhere, but it also has continuities with everything that came before. Right. Um, so, again, these are, these are tricky books, uh, but I think they're really important because especially when we talk about technology, there's a tendency to focus on the new because the new is sexy and cool. Mm-hmm. Um, but oftentimes and of course, these technologies are important, but at many times um, it's the history and the things these build off of that really give these technologies their power. Um, and you need to really, if you really want to understand it, you need both. Right. Yeah. That's, that's really interesting. Great. I'll, I'll add uh, links to those in the show notes. Um, uh, also, so are you, do you, uh, do you have any, like as a player uh, slash a, you know, a, a classical game reviewer, do you have any other thoughts about artifact that you want to share? I, I certainly have some. 
Uh, are you still playing the game? Do you can plan on playing it going forward, etc.? Uh, I played like two games this week. Um, I'm probably going to drop in on it every now and then. Um, but right now, I'm really uh, obsessed with playing uh, Return of the Obra Dinn. Huh. And I played that one. Playing a, yeah, oh, it's so good. And then playing uh, The Witcher 3, the blood and wine part, which I haven't, which I haven't played yet. So. Ah, nice. Um, yeah, I... Um, so, so... Um, are you a big? I forget. Did you say? Did you mention if you were a big uh, collectible card game player in your past or or no? Um, I played a little bit of Magic growing up. Um, I've played enough Hearthstone to you know maybe maybe two hundred fifty hours of it. Okay. Um, but my the game I really dumped the most into was Dota. Um, so mm. that was got what interested in artifact in the first place. Oh, interesting. Like uh, four thousand hours in Dota. Wow. Um, yeah, um, I've never been a big CCG guy. I, uh, Artifact um, to me was more interesting than the other CCGs that I played because you know my big I have a lot of big problems with CCGs, but one of the biggest problems is that like I, on some level, they're just a little bit too close to the card game War for me. Like where you just you know you you know are you familiar yeah. with that game? Yeah, you just you're drawing out cards, playing them, I, and I, yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, the th- that that component of them. They were, they were a little too simple for me, I think. Um, and in terms of just their basic systemic rules, obviously they're super complex when you actually add in all the cards, but the system rules themselves were pretty simple. And uh, I was just really interested in the artifact because it actually, I mean, it's so much more complex uh, on a systemic level than any CCG I had played. Um, Gwent was also a step in that direction. I don't know if you played Gwent, the mm-hmm. uh, standalone Gwent. Um, but it yeah. was also... And it, actually, the latest uh, version of Gwent that came out, um, I like it probably more than Artifact. It doesn't have enough cards to really function properly yet, but um, it's. Mm-hmm. I think that one's very promising. You've, have you, you played that a little bit? Yeah, not a lot, but um, I definitely... I- played it a little bit because it, it came out not long after also that elder scrolls card game which which tried a sort of version of the three lane thing too oh interesting how was that um <clears throat> it was half baked yeah <laughs> it was interesting but at the time it wasn't you know it wasn't going to displace hearthstone and I sure think it sure collapsed afterwards so unless there's any other uh comments thoughts you have uh, i think we'll wrap it up I think that's it, man. Thank you for having me on. This is a real pleasure. Yeah, no problem. Me too. Uh, keep me posted on uh, new stuff that you write, and um, it was it was really great. So thanks for coming on. And thank you so much. And that was my interview with Will Parton. Uh, I think it went really well. And sorry, there was a couple little audio blips in there, but I think uh, we mostly managed to make it work. Um, again, you can support this program by uh, becoming a patron at patreon.com slash Thank you so much for listening, and I will see you next time. <laughs>